Thank you for listening to this podcast from Emanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you would like to learn more about Emanuel or find more resources like this one, visit our website at emanuelbirmingham.com. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Equip Class. Um, my name is Eric Parker. I'm the director of theological formation here at Emmanuel Church. Let us pray, and then we'll dive right in, okay? So, Father, thank you for the opportunity, the blessing, the grace to have a class like this, to think and talk about the things that we do, God. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us here in our time together, that you would manifest your presence and enable our hearts and our minds to grasp and understand what your will is in the world. Help me to communicate clearly and help us all to um, to walk from this place um, and be more equipped to engage in the different spheres of life that you have called us to. We love you and we are so grateful for you and what you, who you are and what you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, so uh, you know we've been talking about public theology, and uh, just a reminder that we're we're kind of in terms of topics, we are allowing the biblical storyline to be our guide. Okay, so from Genesis to Revelation is uh, is sort of how we're kind of going to essentially take our journey together. And that means that the topics that we end up engaging with are feel a little bit ad hominem, you know, kind of like random. Um, but uh, they're random insofar as the, the topics arise naturally out of the biblical text through the biblical story. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like organized chaos in one sense. Um, you could be lost if you just pop in here randomly one week and think, why are we talking about this? Like, you know, our one friend last week, why are we talking about this? Um, but... Uh, but yeah, so, um, so the storyline is carrying us forward, and we've been in creation for the last few weeks, I think. And last week we started talking about the cultural mandate, um, because when we, look in, uh, when we look in Genesis 1, we took note of how many everys and alls there are all throughout the, the opening chapter of the Bible, the beginnings of things. And we noticed that there was just... You know, in God's good design and creation, there was an abundance of, of varieties and kinds of animals and plant life and vegetation and water. And, and there was what, you know, some economists, they use the term superabundance. Um, and then we flipped a couple of pages and we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and we saw how, goodness, sin has ravaged the world. We saw it reaffirmed in Romans chapter 8. And, um, and what that means is that the sin has not just affected us as moral people, but sin has infected all of creation and created um, a scarcity um, uh, effect, essentially. Uh, scarcity being like, it's really hard to get this stuff out of the ground, you know? Uh, Genesis 3 tells us that, you know, we are cursed because, and, and so that cursing means that work, which was good, is now difficult and hard and by the sweat of our brow and never going to be easy. And so, and yet the mandate still remains to, uh, there should be three, uh, three, uh, papers. Um, the mandate still remains to uh, to work the ground, to till it, right? Um, to <clears throat> be fruitful, multiply, um, fill fill the earth and subdue it. All right, that's still the call, the mandate on mankind, Christian or not, because when we're talking about Genesis, we're talking about like the first people, which all of us come from, right? Um, and so the question that I asked last time is, well, if that's still the case, in light of the superabundance and yet the scarcity, how do we, how do we best fulfill that? And there's different ways to go about answering that, but the way that we started to answer it last time was to say, what's, what economic system helps us to best do that? Okay, because we see all of this abundance, and yet we know how difficult it is and we care about people who are made in the image of God, and we want them to flourish. So there's a human flourishing piece, there is an obedience piece, and this stuff doesn't just happen. 
Um, one, uh, I heard one person, uh, Art invited me to a talk last week um, at Sanford, and uh, this was an economist who was saying that um, you know, free markets are maybe one of the best ways to extend neighborly, neighborliness, um, which I thought was a really interesting thing. Um, last week we talked about the couple different options. You know, some people, in order to try to manage and make sense of the of the superabundant, scarce dynamic, um, they want absolute control. Okay, absolute authority over over everything. And so, a, a kind of a simplistic form of that might be something like socialism, or the advanced form of that would be. Um, um, uh, I just blanked on the word um, communism. communism. Thank you. Um, and we look, there's several problems with that. Um, it's, you know, on your sheet in front of you, which I should probably grab one just so I haven't, because I don't have all of these in my slides. Um, yeah, we, we looked at how, you know, one response is, uh, is to try to have absolute order over the earth and its resources. Um, and, uh, and so socialism, as a manifestation of this uh, approach, basically would say five things. Private property should be abolished. The state should control major resource allocation. All goods should be equally shared or owned by all. Cooperation rather than competition guides economic activity. And all people should achieve equal outcomes. Okay, so that's um, kind of five tenets. And we looked and said, well, there's three kind of major problems with that. Number one, it is very hard for a central authority to gather all of the relevant information from the producers and consumers. Even if they could, number two, gather all of the relevant information, the computational power, um, the computation of an optimal plan would require enormous, enormously complex calculations, which may be beyond the capacity of the people who need to implement it, the planners. Um, and then number three, there may be significant incentive deficits. So, for example, firms might tend to exaggerate the resources they need to produce and mislead about how much they can produce. So that's one approach to trying to manage this abundance scarcity dynamic in the world. Uh, think, go ahead. So we're talking about abundance and scarcity, so we're saying that like, maybe our unique time and place requires a unique... I mean, in some ways, there's always been abundance and scarcity, but in a system where, <clears throat> in a more rural system, and I don't know, a feudal society where there's less people to manage and less mouths to feed, and you have other concerns like, will the crops come in? Mm -hmm. Maybe it requires a different economic system, and maybe, um, but, but, but we have like a global society with so many mouths to feed, so many concerns, and there's so many, there's so much data and so much to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, is that different now than potentially 1,500, 1,000 years ago? I mean, the early Christian society, early Christian culture was very communal yeah. uh, in nature. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying like right or wrong, but they, they pulled their they pulled their resources as we still do today, mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, mm -hmm. through our ties and mm -hmm. whatnot. Yeah. Um, but obviously, that doesn't really suit the society at large. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. It, so it could be a question of time and place, um, but I think the fundamental question is applicable from you know the early days of Genesis to now, which is if we have both seemingly unlimited resources, and yet it is, because of the fall, difficult to really um, benefit from as much of those resources as possible, then what is the best system of cooperation to yield the most um, blessing or fruit or whatever it might be for the most amount of people? Um, and so, you know, you could look back a thousand or fifteen hundred years ago and say that some of the principles of what we're, what we're going to look at um, you know, had they been started to put into place, even in small rural villages, um, could have, you know, maximized or, be, you know, benefited them greater than the system that they were living under at the time, whether that had been feudalism or something else or whatever. So, but we can kind of circle back and, and investigate that further once we lay it out and say, okay, do we think that's even reasonable? So, um, 
So, so yeah, so we said um, the other approach to trying to figure this out is absolute chaos. So, um, you know, that's like anarchy or extreme li uh, libertarianism. Um, and so we looked at different problems with meaning and purpose involved in that. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, ultimately, perceived scarcity persists in the approach of, um, of absolute chaos uh, in this approach to resource allocation because human cooperation is undermined by the lack of rules and structure upon which trust is built. In an inquiry into the nature and causes of wealth of nations, Adam Smith said that it is the great multiplication of the productions of all the different arts as a consequence of the division of labor which occasions in a well-governed society, there's the rules, there's the trust, that universal wealth extends itself to the lowest ranks of the people. And then what, we've, we, what we kind of arrived at at the end of our time last week was, okay, it's not absolute order, it's not absolute chaos, but it's actually something that economists for the last 75-ish um, years have been talking about, and one word for it is called emergent order. Um, and it is the notion that if you put in um, a few basic rules and structures that can allow and create trust between people, then out of the chaos will emerge a natural order um, of things. And so in emergent order, we have structure, freedom, and prosperity. And uh, yeah. Just for anybody listening at home, um, the concern is, uh, what about sin? People are sinners. They're greedy. And, you know, in a perfect world, this maybe makes sense. But unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. So what do we do now? And actually, that's where we're going at the end of today's that's discussion. So that's where, that's where we're going to land. All right. Um, uh, and so... So the, the concept of emergent order, then, um, I, I think the best system that typifies or is the example of this notion of emergent order is free markets, okay? And I'm going to make a distinction between free markets and capitalism, all right? Um, and so where we end today is going to be in a discussion of capitalism um, as it refers to some of the issues that you were kind of asking about, okay? Um, but free markets is where I want to begin, and free markets um, really has four four major tenets um, that, and there might be more. And so, thank goodness, thank the good Lord that we have such a great, amazing, esteemed economist in the room who can add to our uh, in, to our deficits today. But um, the uh, the first thing um, is the right. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, the right to own, or the sorry, the right to private property. That's what I'm trying to say. I reworded it from my uh, notes on the screen here. The right to private property, uh, fundamental of which is bodily integrity. Okay, so in a free market, um, fundamentally, you have a right over your body and what it can produce. Okay, so let's say. Yeah, no. All right. So let's say we live in a, um, in a society that is yet to, to produce rules, laws, etc. Um, so it's going to eventually one day, but it just hasn't yet. Okay. So we live in that kind of, so kind of society. We live somewhat spread out from one another. You know, um, this is how it used to be once upon a time. And, um, and I find myself, um, you know, leaving home to go and forge my own way. Uh, maybe I do this uh, in the great America, you know, at the beginning, and I'm going out west or whatever. And so I finally settle on a plot of land, and with the tools that I have, an axe, some hammers, nails, etc., I cut down some trees, I build a fence, 
and I build a fence around the property that I want to establish a life and a home on, okay? And then I build a house and furnish it with whatever things I can make with my hands, all right? Um, and so the, the way that um, kind of political theorists have thought about this is that um, that is now your property because you have taken from the earth. So this would be like John Locke. You've taken from the earth and you've manipulated the earth with your own efforts, with your own strength, with your own you know, sacrifice, really, to yield this product, i.e. this plot of land that is now kind of your domain or whatever. Um, now, a person who's bigger, stronger, maybe not as nice as you are, they come and, uh, well, they like, they like this land, you know? They think that it should be theirs. Um, but not only that, they like you, and they think that you should be theirs because what you just did with all of this land, well, you could do that for them, all right? So one of the fundamental, you know, principles of a free market is to say that your body is not belonging to someone else to do with as they please. Your body is yours alone to do with as you please, to make what you want, to live how you desire. Does that make sense? If, if your body is not your own, then you can be, like my ancestors were, slaves to other men to do their bidding and their work. Does that make sense what I'm saying to you? So, <clears throat> so a free market <clears throat> is upheld by, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. We can cut that out of the recording. Uh, a free market is upheld by this first principle that, like, we have a right to own things, not least of which is ourselves, okay? And then out of, the, out of the overflow of that fundamental principle of owning ourselves, then we can start to establish ties and links to be, me owning something else. Make sense? All right. Um, second is uh, freedom of contract. Freedom of contract. So let's say in a, in a governed society, um, that same person comes to my land and says, you know what, I really like what you've done here. And uh, this, this is amazing. I wish I had something like this. You know what, instead of you know, taking you by force and making you build this for me, can I pay you for you to do the same thing for me? Yeah, absolutely, that sounds great. We've now made a contract that if you pay me this amount that we agree on, I will do this. And that's in its simplest form as a contract. And the freedom part is that there's no one telling you what kind of contract you can make and what stipulations there has to be in it or not in it or whatever. So it's not being regulated by someone else or some kind of you know, agency or authority or whatever. So I can make a contract with whoever I want with you or with y'all or, you know, with a company or blah, blah, blah. Like, because it's my labor, it's my, you know, ingenuity, it's not, it's my life. Makes sense? And it's our life in that sense. So freedom of contract. Number three, equal protection under the law. This is fundamental because when I make the contract with the big guy who's really scary and, you know, could make me do whatever he wants, but he chose to enter into a contract freely with me, um, and then I do all this work, and then I'm supposed to get paid because, well, we don't trust people, all right? Um, and then I do all this work, and he decides, you know what? I don't know that I want to pay you as much as we agreed upon. I don't feel like this is, you know, worth it or something like that. Um, then we need to have some sort of mechanism in order to uh, adjudicate that difference of agreement. You know, all right, so we've made an agreement. Now someone's trying to change the agreement. And what is there to uphold either the original agreement or to say, to rule in favor of the person who says, you didn't do exactly what you said you were going to do. Make sense? This isn't the same quality as your land. This is what I asked for. You didn't produce it. Make sense? So equal protection under the law means that like all of us stand equally under the law and the law is going to adjudicate rightly um, and fairly between individuals who have a disagreement about their contract. Make sense? You guys with me? Okay. <clears throat> Fourth, and finally, a cultural affirmation of trade and entrepreneurship. So that's, that's the principle that just like as a culture, we believe it is a good thing to trade with one another, goods and services, 
that uh, i.e. like it's good to enter into those kinds of contracts and relationships with one another because it benefits me and you and us. Individual, group, and corporate. Culturally, we need to recognize in this system for it to work that this is a good thing. And actually, it's a really good thing if people are out there trying to do new things and fill new needs and meet new needs, okay? So culturally, there has to be sort of this shared ethos, this feeling that that's a good thing, all right? Um, <clears throat> let's see, where are we at in the notes? So, I think these four things mark out basically a free market. Is there any other essential thing that you would add to that, Art? No, not really. Uh, it's private ownership of the means of production, voluntary exchange. Those are the, the, major, the major tenets. Okay. So free markets then um, are the means by which something in historical terms came about that, you know, historians, economists, um, you know, sociologists, they refer to as the great enrichment. All right, it's a period in history uh, turning around the Enlightenment period and then into the 19th and 20th centuries, okay? So when these features that I just laid out, these four things, come on in, man. When these four things began to emerge, then everything in the West and eventually the world began to change, all right? So in their book, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know. Marion L. Tupi and Ronald Bailey provide a little bit of a historical perspective on global poverty that is worth thinking about in light of scarcity and superabundance, okay? So just to remind you, like, we're doing theology together, and theology starts with the Bible, but then has to build with the principles of the Bible. So if you feel like, where's the Bible been for the last few minutes? We're actually coming back to it in just a minute, but we're still leaning upon what we observed in Genesis 1 right now and trying to tease it out as far as we can take it. Does that make sense? So I just don't want you to feel like we're so, like, what's happening? This is, this is not Christianity. This is not Bible. This is, no, we're, we're doing theology, so we're having to build upon what the Bible has said because the Bible doesn't talk about all these things that we engage in every day, so we have to think about, does, is it consistent with that? <clears throat> so, Tupi and Bailey... They say the vast majority of our ancestors lived and died in humanity's natural state of disease-ridden, abject poverty and pervasive ignorance. University of Paris economists Francois, uh, I can't say his last name, and Christian Morrison uh, estimate that as late as 1820, nearly 84% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty, friends. That's roughly on less than $1.90 per day per person. That was when political and economic liberalization in some parts of the world kicked off what economist uh, uh, Deidre McCloskey uh, calls the great enrichment. Consequently, the global proportion of people living in extreme poverty began slowly declining to 66% in 1910 and 55% by 1950. According to the World Bank, 42% of the globe's population was still living in absolute poverty in 1981. In other words, it took 160 years for the rate of extreme poverty to fall by half. Fortunately, the pace of global poverty reduction has greatly sped up. The latest World Bank assessment reckons that the share of the world's inhabitants living in extreme poverty fell to 8 point six percent in 2018 in 1990 about 1.9 billion of the world's people lived in extreme poverty by 2018 that number had dropped to 650 million even despite ongoing population increases that put the world's population at 7.5 billion they go on to say adequate nutrition is a basic requirement for human survival Yet for most of history, food was always scarce. In fact, the greatest famine of all time occurred between 1958 and 1962. I bet you didn't know that. When the Chinese communist ruler Mao Zedong used brute force to nationalize his country's farmland. So this goes back to that absolute order piece that we were just talking about. 
um, to nationalize his country's farmland, causing up to 45 million deaths in the process. Since 1961, the global average population weighted food supply uh, per person per day rose from 2,196 calories to 2,962 calories in 2017. To put these figures in perspective, the U.S. Department of Agriculture recommends that moderately active adult men consume between 2,200 and 2,800 calories a day, and moderately active women consume between 1,800 and 2,000 calories a day. In sub-Saharan Africa, the average food supply per person per day rose from approximately 1,800 calories in 1961 to 2,449 calories in 2017. Put differently, the world's poorest region enjoys access to food that is roughly equivalent to that of the Portuguese in the early 1960s. Lastly, economic historian Angus Madison at the University of Groningen spent his adult life estimating gross domestic product, GDP, gross domestic product figures for the world over the past 2,000 years. According to Madison's calculations, the average global income per person per year stood at $800 in year one of the common era. All right, so, um, you know, the year that Jesus was born. So you're thinking back to New Testament times here. So $800, uh, let me just go back to that. The average global income per person per year stood at $800 in year one um, <clears throat> of the common era. So that's, that's basically two, 2011 U.S. dollars. That's kind of how we calculate that. That's where it remained for the next thousand years. A thousand years goes by and people are still eking out an existence of 800, in today's terms, ish today, um, dollars a year. Okay? Uh, that's crazy. In 1800, average global income stood at roughly 1,140 per person per year. So it rose a little bit. That's good. Put differently, over the course of the 18 centuries that separated the birth of Christ and the election of Thomas Jefferson to the U.S. presidency, income rose by about 40%. The advent of the Industrial Revolution, which is one of the markers of this free market society that I'm talking about, uh, the advent of the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th century changed everything. Between 1800 and 1900, GDP per person per year rose from 1140, so 1140, to 2180. In other words, humanity made over twice as much progress in 100 years as it did in the previous 1800 years. So here's the point in sharing all that with you. You ready? Scarcity is curtailed that like pushed back, lessened, and superabundance is unleashed when people are allowed to specialize their talents, exchange them among one another, depend on the system uphold, to uphold their agreements about those things, and retain the fruit of their efforts. I'll say it again. Scarcity is curtailed in this system. And superabundance is unleashed when people are allowed to specialize their talents, exchange them among one another, and depend on the system to uphold their agreements and retain the fruit of their efforts. Yes, sir. Um, I'd just like to emphasize three really important things about these passages. Please. Um, one, the, the point about extreme poverty, when I talk about this in classes, I call this the greatest story never told. And it's simply remarkable that in the last 40 years, the raw number of human beings living in extreme poverty has fallen by 60 some odd percent, even though the world population has increased pretty dramatically. The second point, um, again, that I try to make pretty regularly concerns um, Mao and the fact that without exception, efforts to quote unquote improve society by socializing the means of production have turned into humanitarian disasters. Mm. Uh, sometimes the regimes of people like Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Vladimir Lenin, Pol Pot, etc., refer to it as refer to as mortocracies because they turn the guns inward and kill their own people by the millions. And then the last point concerns the gains from industrialization, which have accrued almost entirely to labor. Interest rates haven't really changed that much. Land rents haven't really changed that much. 
wages, and in particular unskilled wages in the last couple of hundred years have just have just grown explosively. So huh? I thought they plummeted. They did not. In our country. I'm just they did thinking not. I lived in Michigan and everybody left because their jobs so that's the di so the difference between what you're talking about and what you're talking about are like long-term trends versus um, uh, cyclical trends or whatever. So just politically speaking, as different you know uh, as Democrats take over, as re Republicans take over, you see cycles of what that does fiscally or whatever. <clears throat> so the so Michigan was a big um, manufacturing kind of community, right? Well, we sent most of the manufacturing overseas. And then what we did have, the wages were so low. I can... Well, I'm just, I'm yeah. just telling you my own and, and No, United, it's good, yeah. The United Auto Workers have no one to blame but themselves. They spent decades basically effectively trying to milk the big three automakers on the notion put forth by a lot of mid-20th century economists that there would always be three huge automakers. They would always be super-duper profitable. And then eventually they got to the point where General Motors said they're said they're said they're said they're yeah I know I know but said that they're a pension company that happens to make cars. So they they thought that they they ultimately strangled the goose that laid the golden eggs. Yeah. So so that's one area of of kind of low skill low labor sort of thing. But there's other areas in in the economy that they didn't see that. The, the same kind of like it went down and never came back up. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? And creative destruction is not going to be always good for all of yeah, for absolutely say, everybody it went all down, the time. It never went up. I mean, right. now we're talking everything went down. Yeah. In yeah. Michigan, that's right. Yeah. That's good. Um, I, I have other questions too, and I hope we're going to discuss these. We're talking about just the distribution of money. But we also know that a lot of these things, for example, the, um, the Industrial Revolution was really tough on families. They put children to work. So, I mean, it's not as beautiful as it sounds. Children, that, children were already working in agriculture before industrialization. But that's it's, different. Agriculture. I'm not sure it is. You're put in. Morta mortality is similar. Okay, well, all I'm saying yeah. is. I know. I'm just thinking when they put people in those factories and things, it wasn't always really safe. Maybe it wasn't safe on the other, but I, I also think who is the person in South Chicago? He had this little town where he paid for everybody, but they couldn't. They were kind of stuck there. Yeah. So so it Pullman. yeah. Pullman. It definitely is the case. Uh, it wasn't all roses. Right, yeah, well, well just because it's not all roses doesn't mean that on net it's not. All I'm saying is, I don't want to say that this yeah. is, some people say this is so wonderful, there's nothing wrong with it. Oh, yeah, we're not I there. I just want to say that. We're not there, and we're going better, to. <laughs> I think, instead of best, I think the word should be better, because there is no best system. Well, best in that if you can't find anything better, then it by definition is the best. Now, best doesn't mean it's, you know, perfect, right? Perfect is also the best. Well, I'm just saying, because even the system we have now, I'm just looking what's going oh, on. Oh, absolutely. Yes, and we're going to talk all I mean, about that. That's what I'm yeah. hoping we're getting to, because I hear too much of, oh, this is the best, you know, it's like there's yeah. nothing wrong with this and there's nothing wrong no, with this. No, so yeah. Let's go and say, you know, hey, yeah. We've got problems with all of it. That's why I'm not sure where we're going on this. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, That's where I'm, I'm talking about. Where are we going on this? Yeah, okay. I, I promise we're, we're okay, getting I'm there. I'm sorry if I'm no. raining on everybody You're else's right. parade. No, please, and, and you, you are... I'm just trying to let it all play out. Yeah, no, you, I, I want to hear the rest of this. It's like, okay, I want to I know where are we going with this. No, I agree with it. It's just a lot of, it's just, a, you know, it's just a lot of, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but I agree with it. I'm just trying to hustle and eat out a living like yeah. everybody else. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, it's just a lot of raw numbers. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, like what does it have to do with, you know, Christian living and right living? And that's, you know, it, but that's what we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Is like how does, what's the name, what's the name of the class? Cultural. Public theology. Public yeah. theology. Thank you. Like, like what our Christian belief, how do we apply it to the world at large and in a society that's like barely Christian and uh, 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 
uh, but still probably more Christian than yeah any society ever. Yeah. You know, um, like how do we uh, like how do we reckon you know our daily lives and how do we affect society in a way that's meaningful through our beliefs? Yeah. I mean, I still think like ultimately it all comes down to grassroots. But, yeah. But that's you know. Yeah. Like I said, I'm just trying to like listen and soak it all in. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, so I'll try to. No, you're you're fine, and you're you're not wrong to um, to make that you know astute observation. You know, um, Aristotle and then later Winston Churchill made the observation that democracy is the worst form of government, <clears throat> except for all the others. And I think the same is true here. You know, free markets and capitalism is the worst form of economic systems, except for all the others. Um, and so it, it, it's, there is no system in a fallen world that uh, is perfect. And so that, the question that we have to then ask as Christians, realizing that we live in this fallen world, is what is the system that produces the most human flourishing? Not, not the system that eliminates you know, all hindrances to human flourishing. Um, that's unrealistic. That's impossible. Um, so we can look at all of them and say there's brokenness in this system. And we will look at that in just a minute. Um, so that, that's helpful and good. Uh, let's see, where was I? Um, uh, yeah, so, so the big point um, before we kind of move to the next topic is that, uh, is that when you look at all of the other systems that have been tried um, throughout history, and we haven't mentioned several of them, like feudalism or whatever, you know, um, they, uh, they've yielded very low results in terms of maximizing the amount of people who are flourishing in their lives at a material level. So reading those extended quotes just now was supposed to give us a sense of the breadth of history that in, you know, 1800 years, people did not change their material, you know, prosperity really at all. And in the matter of 100 years, it was doubled because of the Industrial Revolution, with all the bad things that went on as a part of that as well. Does it take into account cost of living, cost of goods? Yep. Okay, because like $800 sounds like nothing, because that's roughly one month's rent in yeah. a rough part of town. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's been controlled for, yeah. So like, um, but you know, like... In Mexico, like in parts of Mexico, where you live on forty dollars, where people, you know, I don't know what that. Yeah, 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 now, right. $40 yeah, forty dollars a month, uh, but you know, the cost of living is much lower, and I'm not, I'm not saying like it averages out. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, you're saying it's like different. Yeah, the the money is calculated in terms of real dollars for them at their time, but it's said in our in our kind of perspective. Their, their cost of living and so when we their think about eight hundred method of was completely different. Yeah. When you think about $800 and what that means to you in your world, um, and it feels like that's not very much money for the span of a year, yeah. that's what we're saying about that's what it felt like to them. All right. So it was different currency and different, you know, but yeah. So art. Yeah. I was going to say, like, so the Madison data and all of the, the numbers that Eric's referring to, these are all adjusted. They're all adjusted for inflation as best we can, and then also adjusted via purchasing power parity methods for things like international exchange rates. So it's close. It's as close as we can get to an apples and apples comparison between a thousand years ago and today. It's just tough because, like, oh yeah, it's hard. Like I said, really simple method. Like you're talking about people milling their own flour and yeah. uh, you know things like that. Mm -hmm. It's just a completely can different you help, way of living. Help me understand what you meant by material. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I mean food, clothing, shelter. Um, those are the basic necessities of life, and then anything over and above that, that is just um, for just pure benefit or pleasure. Um, so it's not just, you know, carrots, bread, but ooh, like I can actually, like, I've got enough to have a cow, and we can milk. And then it turns into, I've got multiple cows, I can kill one of them, and I can eat meat. You know, and, and so that continues to increase, and so, you know, baseline necessities, then you build upon that to things that are not necessities, but, you know, wants or blessings. Or That's what I mean yeah, about it. Because when I hear of material, I don't usually think of necessities. 
that I mean, yeah. I'm sure they are, but for some reason, it, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's the way we use it. The yeah, that's now, how we right. use it in our culture more because materialism, you don't think of Oh, uh, yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. So, about yeah, you, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. So, material sounds like they don't have enough for food. So, yeah, okay, no, you is, help me. Yeah, so that's actually. We have to define our terms. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the, that is the result of the very fact of what we're talking about, that we live in such extreme yes. wealth, material exactly. wealth, that you're like even having a disconnect when I talk about just material you know, possessions or whatever, yes. um, because that's not the story of the world. Um, that's the story of anyone in the world. You know, the, so up until 1800, <laughs> everyone lived in almost abject poverty. That's what we were just talking about across the face of the planet for most of human history. And it's not until 1800 that it starts to speed up drastically. Now we live in this crazy, in the West, this crazy consumeristic, materialistic world. We have, you know, supercomputers in our pockets that can put people on the moon. You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, so let's move to talk then about Ecclesiastes and capitalism. All right, Ecclesiastes and capitalism. And in order to do that, I want to just set it up real quick with, because ideas have consequences. All right, I want you to be able to see this. Ideas have consequences. And what I'm about to point out about capitalism won't make sense unless we think about the ideas first. Okay, so this kind of historical progression of ideas, 1600 to 1880. I'm talking about year time frame, all right? So, you know, in the West, 1600-ish, we have more or less a version of Christian theism. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's even like all of what we believe in here, but the kind of operating worldview for how I thought about why trees exist and, you know, what my family's for and, you know, those kind of things would have sat within that kind of a framework. You move from there as the um, Protestant Reformation hits in the 1500s, uh, and then as the Scientific Revolution hits in the 1500s, um, and then you ultimately land in the Enlightenment period because I don't have a church authority that tells me I have to believe, you know, that the uh, earth is the center of the universe, right? Um, so that's the Protestant Reformation piece. Like, I'm now liberated from that sort of authority. And then you have the scientific revolution part where now, because I don't have to necessarily believe these things, I have a monicum of freedom to start to explore questions that I didn't have before, couldn't have before. And I start to realize that, oh, wait, the sun is the center of the universe. Thank you, Galileo. I appreciate that. Um, and, you know, and that leads then into the enlightenment where people are doing all kinds of questioning. And they're saying, well, you know what? Let's just try this thing from the ground up. Like, how do I even know that I exist? Descartes, he says, well, I think, therefore I am. The only thing I can be sure about is that I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, like everything else might be an illusion, but that's not. Um, and so we've removed God as the starting point, And we've put ourselves at the center of the story now because of Descartes. And so we've moved from Christian theism to deism, which you think of like Benjamin Franklin or something like that, right? Um, so he'd been like a, a deist. So there's a God up there, but he's not knowable. He created everything, set it in motion like a clock, and it just runs now. So he's completely transcendent, but not imminent with us. Our God is both transcendent and imminent, okay? Um, and so we've moved from the Christian God who is transcendent and imminent to a God who's transcendent, hands off, he's not knowable, not touchable, no revelation. And then we move to naturalism. Well, that's not hard. After you have the scientific revolution, the enlightenment thinkers, and we've started to create bases for living in this world that are not based upon uh, kind of the foundational principles of a, of a God who created it. And so if that's the case, then, well, maybe there's not a God at all. And maybe actually all there is is what I see. So you could also use the term materialism. Um, so we got about four minutes, and so I'm going to go through this, all right? Uh, but there's naturalism, there is no God. And so then you, with this as a foundation, we could talk about nihilism. There is no meaning, there is no purpose. Uh, and that kind of gets you to a dead end. But imagine then, in a world in which 
you know, we have some mixture of naturalism and nihilism as the kind of philosophical kind of climate that we live in. So there is no God and therefore there is no meaning. Well, now we're looking for meaning. And you then place that right there, that, that, that notion, and you build a free market system around it. And you have what I call capitalism, um, under the sun capitalism, okay? And so let me show you a few passages out of Ecclesiastes where I'm getting the term under the sun, all right? Um, two, one through five, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity, all right? This is under the sun kind of stuff. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven or under the sun during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves. So he, he had all this stuff, material possessions. All right, that's the point. Um, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And then he says, Then I considered all that, all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, which wind is here today, here in this second, and gone the next second. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Then I saw all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that never ask, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So under the sun, capitalism. Free markets without moral constraints leads to under-the-sun capitalism, which cripples the structures and rules of society around, those, around that system. It limits the freedom, therefore, if the rules aren't really being enforced in the proper and right way, if I can't trust them, and therefore it reduces prosperity for the most amount of people. And modern capitalism manufactures unnecessary inequality of outcomes. Now, I'm not a person who thinks that um, everything should be measured in terms of outcomes, all right? I'm really, what I care about most is, uh, is equality of uh, opportunity. But when there's unnecessary inequality of outcomes, because we live and are working under a broken system, under the sun capitalism, that's where we as Christians can say, let's look back at what we laid out in the principles those four things for a free, a free market that we're deriving off of Christian theology, the people made in the image of God and the superabundance of the world and what sin has done. And then we, we say, let's try to correct where we've gone wrong, okay? Um, uh, we could pick, the, pick this back up next week because it's, it's 10.15, but um, I was going to talk about an example of this kind of under-the-sun capitalism would be something like convict leasing. Um, so anyone ever heard of convict leasing in here? Yeah? Okay, convict leasing is essentially um, 1865, Civil War ends, slavery is abolished-ish, and uh, white racist Southerners and other parts of the country decide, okay, well, we still need slaves, so how do we, how do, we do this? Oh, let's create bogus laws so that then we can imprison these black men and children, and then use them as hard labor, convict leasing. And what would happen is the black men who are taken off the street for things like um, vagrancy laws, which would be like carrying a weapon, which everyone did back then, everyone did it, uh, speaking loudly in front of a white woman, um, uh, vagrancy or having or appearing to have no job. Oh no, you, so you're standing on the street because you have some leisure time and then you get picked up off the street and taken off the jail. Selling cotton after sunset. Oh man, goodness, I would hate to be 
All right, so these are the kind of laws that were put in place. And then what would happen is a white person would come and bail out the black person who couldn't afford their bail. And then they would be in a, basically an indentured servant back to this white person or to the state. Okay? And so the expedient trials would happen so nobody looked too deeply or you know, had a real defense. And then the leasing to whites, courts, and jail fees accrued until payable. These are some perverse incentives, right? This is not a free market system. This is a free market system without moral constraint. This is under the sun capital. This is vanity among vanities. One of the terrible ironies of this practice is that overseers ran the word... Uh, uh, Sorry, sorry, ran the word world gangs with the attitude of slavers. Um, so the overseers of these people who were put in jail and they were working them, they ran, they ran those people with the attitude of slavers, but no one legally owned these workers. These men believed that African Americans under the lash were the, were the key to building an industrial sector in the South. That meant that convicts were treated uh, far, far worse than anything they had endured on the plantation, which is saying a lot, where at the very least, they, uh, their owners limited their cruelty to protect, protect their investment. Sheriffs were allowed to keep an extra money from the food allotment, creating a perverse incentive to feed the laborers as little as possible. Working from 3 a.m. to 8 p.m., they rarely saw the light of day. The men were whipped mercilessly, water-tortured, kept in filthy, vermin-infested, unventilated quarters, and left for dead when waves of sickness swept through the camps. And this, this, friends, happened in Alabama. The leasing program began in 1875. By 1877, 20% of the prisoners had died in custody. By 1878, 35% had died. By 1879, 40% had died. Some of the prisoners were teenagers, and even children as young as seven are listed on the records. So was this system of exploitation profitable? Well, yeah, it was profitable. But it wasn't profitable for the black people who were turned into slaves uh, in enforcement of the state or by the state. And so a free market system unleashes the economic potential of those black people instead of locking them in chains for white people so that white people get rich and black people don't. That, that is not enforcement of um, of your bodily rights, like we talked about. It's not enforcement of contract or equal protection under the law. None of those things mark this system. Profit was being made, but not in a way in which the most people could flourish and generate economic uh, prosperity. Does that make sense? So that's, I think, what you're talking about. And what I want to point out is that free markets, yes, but we live in a society, so this is not contemporary, but we could look at contemporary things where people are getting you know, paid under the table to make certain deals go certain ways, or like congressmen are, you know, they're sitting on congressional committees over these companies, and they're creating the laws that regulate them so they can get a kickback for their investment that they have in the company. All right. Father, thank you for our time. Bless us in church today. Holy Spirit, come down on us. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.